Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Um, I believe none of us are holding up no, all that spectacularly all. well. <laughs> no, it's it's there's too many emotions all happening all at the same time. And there was an earthquake in L.A. on top of it last night, so. which I did not feel. So at least I don't have that one little thing. But anyway, there's there's plenty as is. <laughs> yes. Well, this is our 73rd episode of the show. And while we typically feature three newsy topics, a timely showrunner interview, and then Dan's Critics Corner, this week there's only one real subject that everyone is talking about. Uh, the May 25th killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers has sparked protest around the globe. It has, once again, instigated conversations about the inequitable state of American justice, as well as the flaws, especially among racial lines of law enforcement institutions. Uh, we respect and appreciate TV's capacity to be an escape in difficult times, and hopefully we'll be able to return to that next week. But instead, joining us this week for a conversation about the way television has portrayed police is Warren Light, the showrunner of NBC's long-running drama Law & Order Special Victims Unit and the creator of the long-gestating spinoff Law & Order Hate Crimes. He's also a Tony winner for the play Sideman, created the FX drama Lights Out, and was a showrunner on HBO's In Treatment. Thank you so much for joining us today, Warren, especially under the fraught nature of the circumstances. <laughs> good to be here. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you this week, obviously, because there are very few people who have your depth of experience working and running shows in this genre. But I feel like we'd be remiss to not begin by kind of acknowledging what it means that this is a genre that has been primarily driven over the years by white showrunners. Yeah, no, I, I, I even today's discussion is uh, here I am. Uh, and I, I think that is part of the problem. Even last year, I made a conscious effort. I came back to SVU. I put together a new staff and I made a conscious effort to bring in new voices, fresh voices, different voices. And it was a radically different writer's room than we'd seen, that even than the ones I'd put together years earlier. There's, there is a tendency, and I think we're all becoming more aware of our responsibilities about that, to hire people you know, to hire, you know, you're putting together a, a, a writer's team and you, you go out to the usual suspects, the agents push the usual suspects. And there's a, um, an experience level 
you you want your writers to have. And because the usual suspects have that experience and the guys who found the doors close to them don't have that experience, it works against them. So what you've seen in the past is it's all white male showrunners on, on uh I, I, I was, I'm very glad to, that I was able to get Julie Martin. Uh, we've worked together for a long time. She's an executive producer on the show. That is, was even a bit of a change for network television at, at that time. What you're going to see going forward is people having to work harder to diversify their writer's rooms. And that doesn't, the, the definition of diversifying a writer's room for a number of years has been one person of color. Usually there's a program, different networks have a program where they will even help pay the staff, a staff writer slot for a diversity hire. And, and that has become, and I had high hopes for that. I've tried it a number of times. That has become, uh, that's not a great setup. It, it has bred, sometimes it's bred resentment in the writer's room because uh, that, that person sometimes will get hired with much less experience and uh, you need someone to mentor somebody who's never written a crime procedural before and nobody wants to do. And I, I've seen it go bad. And I think that you have to reach out more and you have to have, last year we had uh, 30% people of color on the staff. And I felt that was made a significant difference in terms of how we discuss story. People brought up things. Sometimes you could look at the glances like, oh, do we really have to worry about that now? And the answer is, yeah. There's no way you can look at it. It's not just the Wolf universe. I'm sure if you look at all the CBS procedurals, if you look at all these shows, it has been, it's been white male showrunners hiring their, their experienced friends. And I, th I think we've tried really hard in the last, last year to show how class and race affect the outcomes of justice in society. But it, uh, I'm beginning to suspect really hard wasn't enough. And, and, and we're in a, uh, this is, this has to be a moment where people make themselves uncomfortable and people in power make themselves uncomfortable. Well, what did you do to change the hiring process? What, what were the tangible steps you took in order to make those changes? Well, I had a staff, I guess, of 10 people last year. I had five people who had never written an episode of network television before in their lives. So I brought in Two of them were journalists. Actually, three of those staffers last year were journalists. And, and what that gives you is people who have been out. Den, I brought in Dennis Hamill, for example, who's uh, been a columnist in New York City for 50 years. He's not a person of color, but he has covered every major story in New York and across the country for uh, going back to um, the Harvey Milk murders. Literally, that was one of his early stories. So he's, He's, uh, he knows the smell of every housing project stairwell in New York City. He knows, he knows religious leaders. He, knows, he has access to communities that, say, a, a, a Hollywood scriptwriter will not have. So I brought in Dennis. I brought in another journalist. Uh, I brought in a former journalist who is um, Asian-American. And that was a voice we had not had in the squad room. And that led to an episode that took place in Chinatown. With a, uh, we spotted in a detective for that episode who was also Asian American. We had, we, we just, we I brought in a Latin, uh, a Latin ex playwright, Monet Hurst Mendoza. Really, I'd read a really interesting play of hers, and she's not been produced all uh, enough. But that's also, you know, when you break in as a playwright, you get readings, you don't get productions. But she's, I'd, I'd read, I, I speak from experience there. I'd, I'd read um, <laughs> uh, a play of hers that took place in a New York City prison, and I thought, well, these are. The voices she's using here are not voices most of my peers could write. 
and I brought her in. And I knew that I would therefore Julie Martin and I have structured a lot of episodes together. And, and between us, we've probably done a thousand hours of TV. So I thought I'm going to take the chance that it'll be on us to structure the help structure the episodes and figure out where how the stories lay out. But I need people coming into that room. So I went to the radical step of five people who'd never written an hour of TV. There were comments like, you know, you're not running a teaching hospital over there because it's, did it increase my workload in some ways? Yes. In other ways, maybe not. Sometimes the, it's a few short steps from experienced to tired to hack. And and it can go there. People just kind of run the numbers of their stories. I, I certainly, we had, we did one episode very early in the season we put three writers together from very different backgrounds and we called it midnight in Manhattan. And it was uh, 1155 on a Friday night. Everyone's about to go home. The phone rings and it's three cases that break and they take place in different. Uh, one is a, a, a spousal abuse in a housing project in Harlem. One is a upper West side, uh, well-off woman who's been raped by an, uh, an Uber like driver. And the third one was a trans woman assaulted down in Chelsea. And it was three different worlds. And how does justice play out for the three victims and the different perps in those worlds? And I thought, okay, this is what where we need to be going to more. And, it, and there, there is an uneven distribution of justice in our society. And the, the show last year reflected that very... I, I'd, I'd like to think the show reflected it very clearly. Do I think we need to do more? Probably. Yeah. Do you guys employ any former police as consultants and, yeah. you know, looking at, you know, how you guys, obviously the, the, the writer's room is already back at work for the upcoming season, which whenever that can go into production, that, that remains a mystery. But in light of the, of the protests, are you going to be hiring any different consultants or adding anyone to that room? Well, one of the other things I do when I open the room up, especially since I had five new writers and, and, uh, and all, I, I have three speakers a week come in to talk to us from two to six hours a day about being a defense attorney, being uh, an advocate for um, victims of, uh, for advocate for bail reform. We have people from virtually every advocacy group we could find come in and, you know, the, the same, the, the uh, sexual assault nurses group came in and talked to us about their jobs and about, we, we had people come in and talk about new techniques in getting victims of sexual assault to recall the, the details of their account, that the, that the old who, what, when, where, why approach leads to disastrous results because people don't record trauma in a literal manner. So you have to approach the questioning of victims of trauma in a different way. So I, I, what I, I have people, I, I, we must have had 15 to 20 people come in in the first four weeks of the writer's room. And I, I remember everyone was grousing. It's kind of, well, when are we going to get to write? And I'm like, soon. <laughs> but but it was, it was, it's a baptism. I will not replace my current, I have a, a, I mean, our legal advisor is a major advocate for the rights of prisoners in America and is trying to redesign a judicial approach to deciding who gets bail and who doesn't based on factors other than the current factors of color and wealth. So I have have good advisors, but I, I augment throughout the year, depending on the episode, I augment. And I suspect we'll have even more varied voices coming into the squad room this year. Plans to have anyone from Black Lives Matter come in? Uh, we have. We just were talking to, to someone today. We're scheduling a meeting for next week for Color of Change is coming in. And we had a, a, a Islamic spokesman last year. We had a, 
an advocate for, you know, uh, we had the LGBTQ advocates. A, a lot of our storytelling is from the point of view also of the victims. It's, it's told through the point of view of our detectives, but, but they are, the, their job is to walk with the victims of the crimes. We have not spent as much time thinking about those accused of crime. We tend to, uh, our sympathies have generally been with victims as opposed to wondering if those, although we do have, we had a, we had a very good episode that Dennis Hamill wrote last season based on a guy who'd been uh, incarcerated, unfortunately based on several true stories of a guy had been incarcerated for 20 years for the rape and murder of his sister and mother, a crime he hadn't committed, but he was afraid the truth was his alibi that night was he was uh, uh, he was a gay a, a gay teenager in in, uh, in Washington Heights, uh, and he was not or in Brooklyn rather, and he was not um, he could not say where he was because he didn't want anyone to know he was gay, and that and the, we had the old school Staten Island cop, some of whom you see on your videos these days, uh, mishandling the current situation in New York. We had the old school Staten Island cop who put him away, saying, uh, you know, and it was a it was a, a murder at a bad address. Who cares? You know, you go into those housing projects, you know, it's either banjos or bongos was the line from the script from Dennis. And that's how this guy spent 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So, uh, yeah, we try to write to it. Uh, in that case, the, the point of that episode, at the end of that, there was an actual rapist out there. We caught him. But then the episode pivoted to can we get this guy released for a crime he didn't commit? And and the way we wrote it, which was very true to life, even when DAs have made a mistake, the last thing they want to do is admit it, even if it means keeping somebody incarcerated who didn't commit the crime, even when they know it. And that's part of the criminal justice system. So I think we we keep looking for those stories. I can't make every episode about a, a bad cop because, uh, uh, first of all, our cops by design are not uh, – This we I think we're trying to depict how justice should be handled for victims – and for perps. And, and, and Olivia makes mistakes. Benson makes mistakes, but, but she, she's empathic, which is, I think, what separates the cops on our television show from a lot of what we're seeing these days on their live streams. Well, does this moment that we're in right now and this conversation that we're having, you know, in the streets of every city in the country and at this point, just about every city in the, the world. world yeah. Exactly. Does it feel to you like it's a different or more permanent kind of come to Jesus moment for this genre that you're working in? Like, like at a certain point, do you feel like people are simply going to say that this is something where we need an overhaul of the entire genre, not just individual changes? I hope to God it's an inflection point. Look, I'm lucky. I shoot my show. Uh, my writer's room is in New York. It's 3000 miles away from where most of the writers, that's a, that's a huge difference too. Everybody in my writer's room comes by subway. So we, we see the city, we worry about the pandemic earlier than other people, we, you know, we, but, but there, you interact a lot more. Uh, I don't know. Change will start taking place on shows individually. There'll be lip service paid probably across the board, but I wonder how deep it will go. I wonder how the, uh, I, I, to me, the interesting shows are the shows that that are really, I think, in trouble are the ones that depict sort of the vigilante cops. Those they're going to need to. I, I've I've been made uncomfortable by a number of shows that sort of glorify the use of violence in interrogation or the use of threat or the the you're going to well wait till Bubba gets you in prison jokes that they make to the rapists and all that. That stuff's like it's over for that. And people who can change will. People who can't change will. I think 
be on 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 shakier and shakier ground. But I don't think everyone can change. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fool myself. I mean, what do you say to people who argue? And you've, there's been a lot of this on social media, you know, in the past few days. But what do you say to people who argue that there are too many cops and, and cop shows on TV that are overly positive in their portrayal of law enforcement? I mean, do you think law enforcement's been portrayed too positively, and in, 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 especially in shows like yours? Collectively, the perception is that cops, yes, you know, uh, yes, clearly we're, we're, I'm on a show called law. I never thought I'd be on, on, on a show called law and order. I, um, I try to write stories that are to me, hour long dramas about, uh, to me closely, the closer I can get into a fifties American television drama about class or culture or, or, or right and wrong, the better. I try to write morality plays every week that aren't didactic. It's not always successful. So, uh, you know, individually, am I doing, am I contributing, miscontributing to society? I don't know. Collectively, are we? Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you, what do you do? Can you go into the network? I have pitched the, uh, and by the way, I think every writer has pitched the Innocence Project series to the networks. I, I, I had a, a DNA, I've pitched I've, uh, uh, several different ways and several different times. I've made that pitch. I bet it has a better chance of going now. Within the Dick Wolf Law and Order universe, it won't be likely that they're going to do a show that reveals, that, that bases itself um, on cops behaving illegal. That's not part of, of, uh, that, of, of Dick's brand. I think you have already, though. Should, I've it, seen, should it be, though, in your opinion? In my opinion, uh, it is not up to me to tell Dick what his brand should be. Um, <laughs> do I think it would be an interesting show? Yeah. In fact, we had um, early on when I got to SVU the first time, this is my second tenure time at the time there. Right. You previously spent five years as showrunner on, yeah. on, on SVU. I had Andre Brower come in as a defense attorney and he got a young black male rapist off and we knew the kid was guilty. We saw the kid commit the rape and he got the kid off and he basically said, if the cops had done their job, I wouldn't have had to do mine because they mishandled the case. They were... They, he used the cops used inappropriate. The case fell apart, even though the kid was guilty. It was a really interesting episode. It was called True Believers, and he and uh, Olivia at the end, Mariska and Andre, also two good actors to have in a scene. Um, <laughs> they they came to the understanding that they're each true believers. He's fighting for the kids in in his world who never who don't see the same justice that other people do, and she's fighting for the victims. But they had an understanding of each other, and even almost I think a hint of attraction to each other. And I remember thinking, this is, this is an interesting place to go. We brought Andre back for a few more cases. And then he, well, I don't know, I guess he went on to do Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> but but, but, but I, I thought that would be an interesting series. I found no, at that time, I'm not a good salesman anyway, but there was no, no one interested in, I think, what, if the real thing's called Innocence Project, we called it Project Innocence. If the real thing's called Project Innocence, we called it Innocence Project. But it was clearly... We're going to do a case about a, a storefront lawyer and, and some acolytes who are trying to see, get justice done in a system that doesn't want to see them. Couldn't sell that show. And you still should sell it. And Andre would still be good. <laughs> there, there's a line here that I find very interesting because you talked about how in a perfect world, SVU should be viewed as kind of the way that the system should work, that we should mm -hmm. believe that this is how you know, these cases go and these investigations go. But I'm curious if you think that audiences are capable of distinguishing between 
here's how it should work, but here's how it does work. And if there's a danger in in audiences looking at this and going, well, see, it does work. This is this is proof it works as opposed to this is a fantasy to some degree. I hear the question. Um, uh, I will say also, you know, violence is violence is violence, whether it's a victim of sexual assault, a victim of police assault, you know. And so I, I will say my experience has been because we are a survivor-driven show. A lot of our audience uh, uh, members are survivors or no survivors, and there's a catharsis for them watching the show. But week after week, we get letters and people come up to me and to Mariska particularly. It's why she started her foundation, the Joyful Heart Foundation. People coming up saying, I wish when I was assaulted, I'd had a cop like Olivia Benson. So then people know. I, I think people know that this is Olivia, that I think it's... Um, they want to believe that there could be, and there are some, I mean, I think you saw that Atlanta police chief recently do some interesting things. You've seen people rise to the occasion when others have, have collapsed under the pressure or, or their true natures come out. I think that the audience is sophisticated enough to know this is not the reality of day-to-day life in the world of sexual assault. The way we often do it, and I guess it's a cheat, is we'll, have, we'll catch a case where a Staten Island cop screwed up or a Bronx cop screwed up, and uh, thank God Olivia's there to pick up the pieces. And so that's, we protect, although our guys make mistakes, but but um, not mistakes out of a flaw, out of deep flaw in character, you know, just uh, in the moment. Uh, I think the audience is sophisticated to, enough to know that, the same way that I think that they know you don't get DNA in, in a three-minute commercial break. I think people wish it were more like this. I think I wish it was more like that. But it, it's, I, I hear, it's, because, well, I'll put it this way. People who had experience with the criminal justice system certainly know. And, and sort of the follow-up question is, can they then tell the difference between your show and the shows that maybe aren't giving as calculated a consideration as yours? And you don't need to name them, obviously. I, I worry about, I, I, worry about um, I, don't, I can't watch a lot of shows. I can't watch, because they just, and, and I know I get things wrong on our show, but I, I I always say to the writer's room, if we're making mistakes, I want to be aware of it. I want to do it on purpose. Like, actually, that guy wouldn't be allowed to be in the court because he's a witness later on in the trial. But I need him in the court to cheat. All right, we screwed up. But we did it for the dramatic reaction, uh, whatever. I don't want to make mistakes I don't know about. I think a lot of other shows shoot from the hip a lot more. There, there are There is a, a kind of TV show that doesn't aim for more than one dimension that's that's more black and white and the the, the mantra in our on our show in our writer's room and from Mariska is go for the gray there's a lot of, sexual assaults a much more difficult arena to write a police show in but it leads it, it is innately gray because of the the he said she said aspects of a lot of our crimes we, we've gone away from we don't have nearly as many bad predators on the loose we have a lot of cases that are about she perceived it one way, he perceived it another way. What happened? What is the, you know, uh, um, and we keep trying to go for the gray. And I think other shows could work harder to find out about the reality. And, and you just don't want to have a cartoonish law and order show. And I think that Dick has always been fairly, has always had a higher bar than than some of the more cartoonist, cartoonist shows where you're, you know, the typical cop's world is paperwork not chase scenes. You know, I can't do an entire episode about filling out a DD5, but I'd like to. So it's it's incumbent upon people to move into this decade. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, how much responsibility, and this is in, in a larger sense, you know, moving forward, falls on TV writers to kind of stop pushing the hero cop narrative? Yeah, the, you know, the... the, the yeah, with Mariska with a cape. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know because people watch the shows to see heroes. I think so. So you you have the responsibility to at least depict the the reality uh, as close to the reality as you can. There are shows with flawed cops at their center, and this is these are the ones that some I, I don't mind a flawed cop at the center, but a flawed cop with a tendency to violence who's glorified to me is a uh, is a real recipe for legitimizing police brutality. And I, I think that's uh, that's that's the, that's what I see the most that disturbs me. We have had cops come in and say flat out, "There is no way you get a good confession by yelling at a guy. There's no way you get a good confession by threatening a guy. You get a um, uh, you get a good confession by uh, RPM is the technique I teach." One guy said, R- uh, "Rationalize." I see what happened here. The kid was. She says she's 15, but she's hot. That's right. You know. Projection. If I were you, I would have done the same thing. Minimize and look. Other than this, you're a good guy. If you talk to your, your, if you interrogate like that, you're going to get to the truth. If you yell at the guy, even if you get a confession, it's likely to be a false confession. And I, I really hate watching shows that depict the lifting the desk and throwing it in the middle of the interrogation room. I understand that that was a trope, even at, at, at times. On, on law and orders, but it, it, I think you, that'll be a harder trope to maintain in the current environment. So I hope that it would be a harder trope to maintain. You know, you guys are heading into another historic season, your 22nd. Season 87, I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the writer's room's obviously been, been open virtually. How are you guys thinking about specific issues raised by the protests, like police brutality and systemic, uh, systemic racism, police funding? The militarization is, yes, that Yes, one. the um, milita- yes, that of, of police forces. You know, just, um, obviously we're not looking for spoilers here, but, you know, you guys are at a certain point in the season are you rethinking storylines? Are you adding episodes? Here's what's so uh, eight days. We, we just reopened the writers' room, right? The, the, we were we we shut down March 13th. And everyone was laid off, and it just reopened last Tuesday, I think, March 20, May 26th, right? So our whole focus for the first five days was we're going to reflect New York in the pandemic because it has altered the face and fabric and time and sense of New York completely for all of us, and we're all local and we want we're and we also know it's going to be more difficult to shoot shows going forward. So we need shows that are what we call more of a bottle episode, fewer extras, fewer locations. And we're, so the first four days was just how are we going to approach that? Going to pro, uh, what, what's our path going to be? I guess that's I don't even know what month we're in. I was that that's a week ago. Oh my God, <laughs> that's ten days ago. And we we started to talk about stories. And we had obviously you cannot tell a story in New York that's going to shoot if we're lucky or if things go well in August without having uh, you know what? Ha- so we start to think about okay. So what happens to somebody who is sexually assaulted during the height of the, the coronavirus pandemic in New York? Would you go to a hospital for a rape kit? Probably not. 
So we start and we started to wonder about how that's affecting. Uh, also domestic, we thought there's more domestic abuse with people trapped in apartments. So we, we've been working on a domestic abuse story. We've been working on a serial predator who takes advantage of the epidemic or whose victims don't come forward during the pandemic. That was Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday. Uh, and I, and it basically I gave, I put the riders into, we t- uh, okay, we, I think we called the groups. I said, let's just divide three riders into two groups each call one group mask and one group gloves and we'll meet again today and now today we renamed the group curfew and midnight uh i said mask and glove is so may <laughs> so may 2020 <laughs> and so now we're you know like all of us we're whiplashing to again what's going on in new york and how do you reflect in the midst of a pandemic an insurrection caused by uh, systemic racism and police brutality so there's a lot going on but we're you know uh, we're reeling we we had had a teaser that we altered today. We yes, we we have uh, we altered a, a teaser today to have somebody who's assumed to be guilty because he's black and he's in the wrong place. And we added the extra beat that they can arrest him on the spot because he was arrested during demonstrations and he didn't show up for a desk appearance. So there's a warrant out on him, and that was today's. Edition. I, God help me. What's next week? I don't know. You know. Um, but look, uh, this show always is of the moment, or we try to be of the moment. And I think there are other shows. I think Blue Bloods sometimes will. You know, it, and people may not want to show respect to a, a an old time CBS show, but Blue Bloods I think tries to capture what's going on in New York too, and from a different point of view maybe. But they go there. Different shows are going to have to do that. But yeah, we have to we have to figure that out. Again, though. Our focus is usually through the point of view of the cops and the experience of the victims. And so, but yes, we have to write more toward, uh, and also we're, I have a, we, we have the SVU chief now is a guy named Demore uh, Barnes. He plays Chief Christian Garland. He's African-American, well, he's Canadian, African-Canadian, I should say. And, uh, and, we, and we have ICE. So two of our six main characters are black and Jamie uh, Hyder is uh, is Middle Eastern American, and we actually brought in a, a, another detective last year who's a Yemeni detective. So uh, we have a diverse enough cast, and we'll be looking, I think, to bring in more that way to tell that side of the story uh, as well. well. We'll use specifically by name address George Floyd, his killing, and the subsequent. Protests. Oh well, we'll we'll see it with the uh, yeah. It'll it has to come up, and, and it will. Um, it'll come up when we arrest somebody. We've also played that beat even last year. The second the cops on the street arrest someone, now the cameras are out, and we've played that beat a number of times. And 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 what does that capture? We did a a, a subway groper story, but immediately the minute he was arrested, he claimed it was racism. Uh, That story ended up being about an immigration officer who shakes women down for sex in exchange for the green card. And it was, again, the most vulnerable members of society. But yeah, we had even uh, I was talking to a district, a former district attorney yesterday, a former ADA. And she told me grand juries are not going to indict and juries are not going to convict because of what's happening now, whether or not someone's guilty. She said the only case she ever lost, which I kind of enjoyed, uh, was after the uh, Amadou Diallo story broke. She said, you're not going to, and, and she said, and the cops have brought this on themselves and the, and the correction system has brought this on themselves and the judicial system has brought them on themselves. But who's going to believe, what New York jury is going to believe a cop right now unless there's 
a preponderance, an over preponderance of evidence. I thought that's an interesting, what I'm, so that's one way I can talk about it. The obstacles that it presents to Carisi, our district attorney, because he knows the cop on the stand isn't going to be believed at the moment. And so there, there are ways we, we will find our way in to tell the story. And presumably our cops will still be trying to do the right thing, but it's going to be harder for them and they're going to understand why it's harder for them. Well, when you have a show that's been on as long as SVU, as you jokingly said, 87 seasons, but even the actual number is pretty remarkable. You're dealing with a lot of ideologies and topics that have shifted dramatically. Do you ever look back or think back on how you handled a certain storyline or a certain subject matter and feel regret? Be like, okay, we would clearly not do this 10 years later. Or if I had a do over, I would yeah, you do know, this one over. I, I mean, I, I, um, yeah, things happen in a TV season. You know, you're knocking out 24 of them, 24. And so I have regrets once or twice a year, no matter what. I mean, that, I mean, like uh, um, I want to crawl into a hole at certain moments of a scene or something like that. Or uh, did I cast the wrong person? Did I? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I haven't in the last four days looked back at episodes I've done through that prism. I think I'll be doing that. Uh, I think people will be pointing. What I like about our fan base is they're very um, engaged. They'll start pointing it out to us. I know that um, I put an end to jokes about prison rape in our show. Uh, um, and again, times have changed. It was perfectly acceptable for cops to joke about prison rape in early years of SVU. There's nothing funny about rape. Even, and, there's nothing, and there's nothing good about hoping a guy gets raped in prison because he's a bad guy. That's right. That, that's and that's. You'll still hear that sentiment. What wait? What happened? You know. And I, I'm glad to say that one's gone. If I go through my mind, did I do that in the first season? I got there. Was I? I became more sensitized. I hope to survivors and the and the, the journey over time. You start talking to people. You know. You, but uh, I imagine uh, there will be. I mean, I don't. To be honest, I don't watch the reruns of my own episodes. I I, I can't follow the plots. I don't know what's going on. So. I, um, but uh, uh, yeah, inevitably, you, you know, you're so you have to uh, allow from the fact that you screwed up and you have to try to change as much as you can going forward. And it's a struggle. I'm not a, a, a one of the other things I did in diversifying that writer's room, it brought in more voices. Uh, and, and some of them are there's some uh, and I admire it. There's some anger. There's some hostility. There's some. It was some of the older writers are like, oh, that's that's a kind of a cheeky stance for a, a, a staff writer on, and that staff writer's fourth week on the staff. I thought, good. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, it is. But it got, it got, you know, you have to, we all have to try. And the people who didn't think they had to try are the ones who really have to try. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem with privilege is you don't know you have it, right? And you don't know that your perspective is monocular because it's the only perspective you've had. Now, uh, you mentioned the fan base and the vocal fan base, and certainly people who follow you on Twitter know very well where you stand on these issues. You do not cover up your opinion particularly. I'm curious how that plays, given how Dick Wolf is very much the opposite and always has been. He comes into press tour. He's always asked these specific questions and his answers. He doesn't want to talk about what he feels. So how does that play having 
your opinions and being as vocal as you are in a universe that maybe isn't always open to that? I think there's an appre- <laughs> a begrudging appreciation of, of our differences. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe on a good day. What I try very hard not to do is not let my own politics pervade an episode. I, I feel like if at the minute we get didactic or preachy, we're dead. It doesn't matter so much what I think or what I feel about where this country is at the moment. When we start plotting, it's, it's about the, and, and maybe my, what helps me is we always write from character, the, the story of these people. Every person in these episodes had a life that was unalterably changed at the moment they entered the story. And you know, if you've been a crime victim, your life is never the same. If you are arrested, whether for a crime you committed or didn't commit, it's never the same. I was subpoenaed to testify in the Harvey Weinstein trial. That was horrible for me. Uh, luckily, they uh, realized they'd made a mistake by the defense, by the way, right? They, I think while I was down there, they realized they'd made a mistake bringing me in and I didn't have to go in. But the anxiety that caused me, the five days of headlines saying Warren liked to testify on behalf of Harvey Weinstein was horrible. And, you know, it's because I had worked with Annabella Sciorra. And so they were going to try and get me to victim blame, essentially. And uh, there's really nothing... Uh, you know, Annabelle and I, after the verdict, spoke at great length. And we're, in fact, we were about to bring her in on it. The episode that was shut down, she was about to reappear in. But uh, if you go through these things, it was a good lesson for me. Your life is, ne- is, is the pressure on you just to testify is unbearable. Imagine what it's like to be a victim of an assault having to testify against your accuser. So I feel like I have to try to write from character, from the realness of what people go through and not let my political beliefs, which I hold very strongly, dictate story or plot. Because that's just, it ends up being agitprop. And, and that's a, a, dry, a dry cake. I don't know. It's like... In addition to SVU, you are also working on, or at least were at some point, um, the spinoff, Law & Order Hate Crimes, yeah. not to be confused with the Stabler, the Chris Maloney show right. that was just uh, picked up. A, just because there hasn't been an update on, on that, what's going on with it? And B, how does the current climate change or influence what you originally wanted to do with that show? Uh, I still want to do what I originally wanted to do. I'm still, it, it's essentially, it was originally slated to go forward. And then I think it was perceived to be a better fit with Peacock. Partly right, the because streamer. the nature of hate crimes, the vocabulary people use when they commit hate crimes is not acceptable on network television. And and that's, it's an interesting consideration. And so, and also I think the, the Peacock is, is, you know, they, people knew Peacock was coming and it seemed to be what th- those were. I'm like a little, you know, ant in an anthill working on my little tunnels and stuff. And then the, the those are decisions way above above my anthill. But it was it was it was put a little bit, I suspect, on hold while waiting for the launch of Peacock. And now it's a, um, a, it's been a, a stop start process for me. I think it's a, a show that needs to be made. And I don't think that's an arena where I feel like you know, if, if SVU is about the gray, that's a trickier arena. And it's about, um, but again, where it's, where, it, where it dovetails with SVU is it's about the toll it ta- uh, hate crimes takes on a victim, victim's family and a community. You know, it's, a, it's one thing you're walking down, a street, you come to your car and somebody broke into your car, or somebody steals your computer or something. That's bad. But somebody beats you up just because of your, the color of your skin or who you are or who they think you are, because half of these guys are so dumb they'll take a baseball bat to a Sikh guy on the street thinking he's a Muslim. I mean, they're not, it's not a sophisticated criminal group in general, although there are 
these organized groups now, which all the stories of whom also need to be told. It's a, it's an arena I think that needs to be written about. I'd like to see the show go. There are a lot of plates spinning or balls in motion in the wolf world at the moment. And the, the, I think once the Maloney show became possible, that took priority because I, I, I mean, I, even as a, a guy who's been on Twitter for too long, I've never seen um, the reaction just to the, I was on a SVU podcast. And I said, yeah, he'll be in our first episode. I'm pretty sure that that got picked up globally. I think that show goes first <laughs> And I'll, I'll be, I've been working on hate crimes. I've been working closely with a very experienced member of NYPD, former member of NYPD, who, who knows these cases backwards and forwards and, and is both empathic and I would say uncannily dedicated to solving the crimes and, and, and smart about how he did it. So there's an interesting character and story to, and the stories are heartbreaking and need to be told, but I'll go when they let me. Um, you know, speaking of, of the Stabler spinoff, which, as I understand, it was supposed to be introduced in one of the final episodes of last season of Law and Order. There was a writer this week from that show who was fired for a social media post in which he posed with a very large weapon um, and threatened to, quote, light up looters. Given that, you know, his recent firing and Dick Wolf was very swift to take action with a very bold statement condemning that. I wonder how are writers vetted to determine if they have agendas or biases? You know, writers are, are a weird subspecies of, of human nature. Uh, so we, we're, we're all kind of in our own little worlds and stuff. I, and I think it's like the showrunner wants to hire somebody, you read the script. And only recently have people started going on to social media and seeing, wait a minute, is the, is the guy a, a virulent anti-Semite in addition to being a... But, yeah, there's, of course, the SNL debacle. Yeah, yeah. I think, it was, you know, that didn't exist when I broke in. I, um, I was a playwright and I, um, I met with the showrunner and I, I had a good pitch for him and it, I wrote my first criminal intent. Nobody, there was no social media, you know, I guess there were chat rooms or something. So, yeah, that, that story, I think, took, took the right action. Uh, it's, it's, that story is going to serve as a warning sign, too. You know, I think also now every time... When you get rehired to start season 22, there's start paperwork on your job. Even executive producer has gets like a little electronic contract. And in it, you have to click verify, verify, verify. And there's pages and pages of you are, what you are and are, no, are not allowed to do as an employee of NBC Universal. We tell people all the time, if you are wondering if you should post that on Twitter or on Instagram, the answer is no. <laughs> if, you know, it's also a good rule of thumb for journalists. Too. Yeah, you know, it's just also for writing a letter to your recent ex, you know, <laughs> <laughs> write the letter, send it to yourself, read it in the morning, write the tweet. And I, I, I think I've screwed up some tweets. Sometimes to engage on Twitter is to go into a, a, a real death spiral. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that you're going to see more vetting. Uh, that was just at this moment, that's not reading the room. I think, and not understanding where, where, where things are right now. What reactions have you been getting on Twitter the past week? Because I mean, you're always, you're always pretty out there with what you're thinking and what you're feeling, but I would say you've probably been more so in the past handful of days as, as most of us have. And I, I'm curious what, how, what the percentage of just tell us stories, storytelling, man, you know, responses I mean, you get. At, at the risk of tempting fate, uh, the trolls <laughs> have been down a little bit 
Uh, I don't know why, or I'm not enough on their radar. I, I mean, the tr- when you get, there are times where you get carpet bombed. From a story point of view, it's interesting. Everyone's been holed up in their houses. A lot of people have lost jobs. People, I've lost a dozen people that I knew. People are in an extremely fragile, vulnerable place right now. They're economically devastated. They're physically worried. They're anxious. They're with their families. And then you throw in the, the murder of George Floyd and an explosion of, of justifiable anger and a horrible response from the president. It's a powder keg. And so I'm, I think you're catching... Um, People are off. So some people are, it uh, doesn't matter what I say or do, it's not enough. And some people are going to say, you're, uh, um, I bet you're in a gated, a million dollar gated community and multi-million dollar gated community in Hollywood. And I'm like, <laughs> no, but all right. So the, the people, you know, uh, if you donate money, it's, 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 it's not enough. It does, so there's going to be a sense of, there's a lot of free floating anxiety and a lot of free floating anger, and you're just going to catch it. I'm reminding myself and others not to engage uh, I saw a couple of people yesterday just get caught up in a downward spiral. Even within the fans, the fans are arguing with each other, which I uh, and trying to like DM me saying, "Did you know so and so said this?" And I'm like, "It's high school. I can't do this." <laughs> <laughs> and we could probably talk to you all day, but just sort of as a as a last question, I, I wanted to bring up the donation that you made this week to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund inspired by Griffin Newman and Stephanie Beatrice. And I'm just curious if you wanted to talk a bit about the principle that you guys were all making with that particular. Okay. Well, I I mean, I I don't know how that, by the way, I don't know why it's number $11,000. It's a kind of a, I I don't know, because the other guy did it. So um, (laughs) uh, it's not the first donation I've made to legal causes. in my life, I, the Marshall Project. I, 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 I try to, you know, to, to st- step up, step in where I can. I had just been, the week before that, of course, was equity fights, Broadway Cares equity fights, AIDS helping COVID uh, victims. So, you know, uh, and, and, and food banks. We're, we're, there's just, we live in a society where a lot of needs are not being met by a government that has different priorities. And if I can help, I will, but I'd rather see a seismic shift in the way we go. Why, why did, well, you know, the, it's, it's a cliche that we've seen, but it's true. How come every police force in the country has high level military gear and the nurses at Maimonides Hospital didn't have gowns and masks? How is that? What planet? That, what, why is that? Why is there a $6 billion, $6 billion New York City NYPD budget and the city hospitals? were cut short, caught, caught short. So it's, and I, you know, it's all part of the same puzzle here. We're talking about a system of economic inequality and discrimination, and it shows up in the death rates to Corona the same way it shows up in the police brutality arrests. Uh, we're in, we're in a, a mess and it's scary given the, the lack of leadership at, at the moment uh, or anti-leadership. Well, Warren, we really appreciate you taking some time out uh, from your busy schedule to talk to us about this. And we really appreciate your candor here. Well, yeah. uh, (laughs) Nice to talk to you. And and I I appreciate people trying to figure this out. And I appreciate that you're trying to talk about it. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Warren. Law and Order's SVU is TV's longest running primetime live action drama series. It is sold all over the world. It has also been renewed for three additional seasons, taking it through at least 2023. That, that's a wrap on this week's show. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Dan and I will be back next week with what we hope will be a return to our usual format. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, if you missed the Critics' Corner this week, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. 
As always, you can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on on Twitter. We, we like to hear from you. If you have questions, maybe next week will be a mailbag week. I mean, honestly, it's hard to predict any of this stuff, but you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.